In June 1889, Vincent van Gogh painted Starry Night, one of the most iconic pieces of Western art. It is well known enough to have been complimented by a truly astonishing number of parodies. Nearly every facet of popular culture, and also the unpopular for that matter, has been fitted into the notable scene of tortile spirals eddying across the pre-dawn sky. Few people, however, realize that in the same month, Van Gogh painted a daytime counterpart to Starry Night. It is called Olive Trees in a Mountainous Landscape, and among the painting's whirls and pearls, reels and rolls, the knotted olive trees were fitting subjects indeed. It is these grandfatherly arbors that are the subject of our discussion today. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry. If you have never seen Olea Yoropaya, the olive tree, and are wondering what it looks like, you can visit storiesofsymmetry.com where a photograph of an olive orchard graces the homepage. While you're there, you can also check out blogs, donate to Stories of Symmetry, listen to episodes, and more. Olive trees make appearances all throughout the Bible, nearly, if not always, with positive connotations. Early in Genesis, when the waters of the great deluge were beginning to recede, Noah released a dove, and that dove returned to him with a fresh twig from an olive tree. It was hope for a new beginning, and a sure sign to Noah that life would continue upon the face of the earth. When the Israelites, recently liberated from the Egyptians, were poised to enter the promised land, the Lord urged the people to remember all that God had done thus far and was about to do. Addressing the nation, Moses said that the Lord was about to give them all manner of good things for which they did not labor themselves, not only cities and houses and cisterns, but also stately olive orchards. Ceremonial olive oil was used in the Jewish temple Beit both for burning and for anointing. The olives for this special chrism were hand-picked and hand-squeezed. The process is incredibly labor-intensive and yields very little oil, but that which is produced is unalloyed and unparalleled, because only the finest quality is acceptable for the house of God. King David, whom the prophet Samuel anointed with olive oil, wrote a poem in which he described himself as a leafy olive tree in the house of God. He was contrasting himself with a reprobate scoundrel named Doeg the Edomite. That person trusted in his own might and loudly boasted of his evil ways. David, on the other hand, steadfastly trusted in the Lord. He was stalwart, dependable, steady, faithful, and enduring, just like the olive tree. Another place we hear about olive trees is in a vision that the prophet Zechariah had. The Lord showed him the lampstand that burned the olive oil in Beit HaMikdash, the house of God, and to either side of the oil's receptacle was an olive tree, one to the right of the lampstand and one to the left. Zechariah asked what the trees represented, to which God replied, Is it not plain? These two are the anointed ones. 
the high priest, and the governor of Israel, who stand by the Lord who rules the entire earth. In the New Testament, when writing to the fledgling congregation at Rome, Paul described the family of God's inheritance as an olive tree. He said that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those who were covered by the covenant given to those early patriarchs, that is, the nation of Israel, were like an olive tree. Yet, some of those bloodline Israelites fell away from God, like broken branches. But in their place, new branches, the Gentiles, like the Romans to whom Paul was writing, were grafted into the olive tree of God's people, to become full members of the tree, and to bear fruit of the same. So, you can see that we find olive trees throughout the Bible. I didn't mention all instances, mind you, but many of them. Yet, from this sampling, we can begin to gain an understanding of what the tree, the fruit, and the oil of the olive all represent. Delicious food, for sure, and an important part of that culture's economy, also a source of food, and fuel to burn in the lamps, both in Beit HaMikdash and private residences. Yet beyond its objective qualities and uses, the olive tree and its derivatives are metonyms for higher ideals and weightier notions. The olive tree is almost painfully slow to grow, representing patience, determination, and endurance. There is also persistence and steadfastness as the seasons pass into the years, as the empires of Mesopotamia and Canaan came and went, individual olive trees remain constant and steady through them all, some lasting for many hundreds of years or longer. Each year, like inexorable clockwork, the oblong fruit burst forth among the small, greenish-gray leaves, the same leafy branches that the ancient Greeks used to crown the victor of the Olympic Games. The olive symbolizes fortitude stalwartness, dependence, faithfulness, and many other qualities that are not only noble, but which some might ascribe to the Holy One himself. But of course there is another aspect of olives, and there is another very famous mention of them in the Bible. Here, let us acknowledge the pressing. Just east of the city of Jerusalem, is a large hill called the Mount of Olives. This place featured prominently in the life of Jesus, especially during his final days. During Passion Week, since he was staying in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, the Bible tells us that he made a daily journey from Bethany over the Mount of Olives and into the city, likely passing through the famous Eastern Gate that we discussed in the Season 1 finale. And, of course... Jesus made the reverse journey in the evening. You might also be aware that on one of those daily journeys, Jesus cursed a fig tree that was in leaf yet without fruit. That encounter we discussed in this episode's Season 2 counterpart, If I Were a Fig Tree. The setting is this. It was the night of Passover, a feast that commemorates when God slew the firstborn sons of Egypt while passing over and sparing the Israelites, who, the next day, were granted their long-sought exodus from Egypt. The Passover meal and its ceremonies were completed. So too were the prayer, presage, discussion, 
and the other things that Jesus and his disciples did that evening. Then, Jesus retired to the Mount of Olives, taking eleven of his disciples with him. Judas Iscariot, the missing disciple, was off on other business, but he showed up before the night was over, as we'll see. The Mount of Olives is a large enough swath of land, but we know that they went to a specific place called Gethsemanim, or Gethsemane as it were, literally, the place for pressing oil. Now I ask myself, if I were an olive tree, there in Gethsemane, what would I have witnessed? Night has fallen, and now, twelve men approach the place of pressing. One, Jesus, bids the others to wait just inside the garden. Sit here while I go to pray, and you yourselves pray that you do not succumb to temptation. Before they sit down, he motions to three of them to join him deeper into the garden. Out of earshot and just beyond sight of the other disciples, Jesus brings James, John, and Peter around him. My friends, my grief is too much, and my sorrow has brought me to the point of death. Stay here and keep a watch. Then, going only a stone's throw away, Jesus kneels. This man, who only days before was hailed as a king by cheering crowds, now prostrates himself in a garden of olive trees. With sorrowful eyes upturning to heaven, he cries out, Father, is it possible that you can take this cup from me? Even still, let not my will, but yours be done. If I were an olive tree, there, I would have witnessed that while the master prayed, Peter, James, and John also struggled. Through the gnarled grove, they could see Jesus, silhouetted in the moonlight, kneeling and praying. They had seen Jesus at prayer before. They had seen him weep at the death of his friend Lazarus. They had seen him angry and outraged. They had seen him tranquil amidst Priscilla's seas as he calmly walked on stormy waters of Lake Galilee. They had spent three years with the man and knew his moods well. But this night, in Gethsemane, was different. Though only seeing his outline, they knew his spirit was amiss. His lugubrious countenance was mute, but it bewailed nonetheless. The struggle that they witnessed in Jesus, though from afar, was such a powerful and emotive scene that they too were saddened. John, James, and Peter felt the shock and could not keep their feet. One by one they lowered to the ground. One of them, feeling the tears of Jesus well up in his own eyes, puts his head between his knees. Another turned away and pressed his cheek into the sentinel olive tree, offering itself as a backrest. Between their sorrow and the long, eventful day, they fall asleep. Wake up, Jesus told them. He could have been irritated, were his mind not otherwise preoccupied. My friends, are you not able to stay awake for even an hour? Get up and keep watch while I pray. Then Jesus aligned once more, and once more fell to his knees and begged his Father in heaven, Abba, 
Father, I know we agreed that this is the way, but now that it is before me, is there no other course of action? Would that this cup of torment could pass from me. Nevertheless, if this is still your will, then let it be done. Wake up, Jesus said as he returned to the three. Are you asleep again? Rise now, and pray that you do not give in to temptation. Soon you will need strength and endurance. Keep watch as I pray. Jesus withdrew once more. The disciples turned to each other and were ashamed of their inanition and inability to overcome their own drowsiness. But their efforts were in vain. The moonlight cascaded through the branches. The wind lilted on the olive trees and softly crooned as it passed between the gray-green leaves. The whole scene was soporific, like sirens bidding sailors come. The garden and the night bid the disciples sleep. While his three friends were overcome by sleep, Jesus, meanwhile, was overcome with anguish. The place called Pressing was well suited for his tribulation. Perhaps Jesus could see the great stones wherein the olives were crushed and rather wish that he were there instead. Atlas only carried the heavens, but Jesus there in the garden felt the full weight of heaven and earth and all of eternity. Every sin that man had committed was before him. A great heaping mountain of transgressions was about to be placed on his back. Not one of them was his, but he would take them all. As the weight of his impending fate pressed down, as the vice fixed him in his jaws and squeezed, Jesus began to sweat. Not water as you or I sweat, but rather his pores issued great drops of blood. Physicians call it hematidrosis, and it comes from extreme stress. With blood dripping down his face, one final time, Jesus cried out to heaven, Father, everything is possible for you, and if you will that this fate be averted, then please, God, take the cup away from me. And yet, if it is your will, then I will see it done. His strength was nearly spent, grievous to the point of death as he himself described it. But the hand of God descended upon him and invigorated him. Only be strong and courageous. Jesus rose and returned to the disciples who, once again, were fast asleep. Enough of your sleeping and resting. Rise now, for the hour has come. The Son of Man is given into the hand of sinners. Here, my betrayer comes. Let us up and meet him. No sooner had Jesus announced the arrival of his betrayer than Judas Iscariot, the twelfth disciple who had not been there in the garden, approached Jesus, greeted him, and kissed his cheek in friendship. Now if I were an olive tree there, I might not have realized it at the time, but that kiss of Judas was the mark. You see, before the events in the garden had unfolded, Judas had arranged with the politicians to arrest Jesus and charge him with capital offenses. For thirty pieces of silver, Judas agreed to give over his teacher, and it was arranged that this would happen on the night of Passover. As Jesus and the others concluded the meal, 
Judas Iscariot made his way to the conspirators. Judas knew that Jesus would be at Gethsemane after supper, and he agreed to lead the soldiers there. The captain of the guard had a concern, though. He asked how he would know which one was Jesus, so that they might arrest the correct person and chase him down should they scatter. Judas answered him, I will go up to him, the one I kiss. He is the man to seize. The first of the olive trees saw a posse approaching. They came with swords and clubs. The eight disciples who Jesus had left close by the entrance turned to run to Jesus, but he was already upon them with James, Peter, and John, saying, Here my betrayer comes. Rabbi! Judas exclaimed. He approached Jesus, embraced him with a hug, then kissed his cheek in friendship. Never breaking equanimity, Jesus said, Friend, do what you came here to do. Then to the mob which was led by the chief priest he called, Who is it that you seek? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered him. Ego Amy, I am, was the reply. Now it was no surprise to the ancient olive trees, some of which were over a thousand years old, who had watched a young king named David capture Jerusalem, that city on the adjacent hill, and who had watched his son Solomon build a great place of worship. Those olive trees knew that the name of God was something mysterious. Sometimes the divine one was called Yahweh, sometimes Adonai, meaning Lord, sometimes Elohim, God, El Shaddai, God Almighty, El Roy, God who sees, and other names. And yet sometimes the Holy One was simply, I am. So if I were an olive tree in Gethsemane, I would not have been surprised that, when the throng said that they had come for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus answered them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground, because the Son of God had just spoken the name of God. But after that, the soldiers went to seize him. Before they could lay a hand, though, one from among the disciples attacked the high priest. It was Peter. He had missed the priest and struck his servant instead, a man named Malchus, and cut off his right ear. Stay your sword, Peter, Jesus commanded. Are you daft, man? Do you not think that if I needed rescuing, that my father in heaven would send twelve legions of his attendants to save me? Sheathe that blade. For don't you know that if you take up the sword, then you shall die by the sword? This is the way it must happen. Shall I not drink from the cup that my father has given me? How low shall the scriptures be fulfilled that I must be turned over to the very sinners I come to save? Then to the arresters he said, Am I a robber, that you have come out against me with swords and clubs? Day after day I was in the temple courtyard, and yet you did not seize me, but that you might find me here at night. It is just as the prophets said it would be. Jesus was taken, and the disciples were allowed to go. But if I were an olive tree, I would have done a double take. For before the groves were emptied of disciples and soldiers, I would have seen a young man streak by butt naked. Somewhere in that confusion, that young man who must have only been wearing a linen cloth to start with, 
must have attempted to run after and free Jesus from his captors. And in whatever struggle ensued, or maybe he was just running away, his clothes fell off. Thus ended the events at Gethsemane. Today, the question, and the theme really, has been, if I were an olive tree in Gethsemane, what would I have witnessed? I would have seen Jesus tell his disciples to pray, that they would be able to stand up to temptation. Did they know what temptation Jesus was expecting? Probably not, though in retrospect they more than likely realized that, all along Jesus had been insisting that to fulfill the scriptures, he must die at the hands of sinners, and that, in that moment, they should not give in to temptation of fear, but overcome it with faith that Jesus was indeed Messiah and God. But in Gethsemane, that revelation was still forthcoming, so Jesus merely bid them pray. I would have then seen Jesus take his closest disciples, Peter, John, and James, and ask them specifically, to stand watch while he, a little farther away, prayed. It would have seen three times Jesus consult God. He, of course, knew that their plan was for him to die as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. But nevertheless, he asked of his father, Is there another way? Something different that you prefer? Because now, looking down the barrel of the sins of the world and a Roman cross, it is something else entirely up close. This cup is bitter. My grief is overwhelming. But if not, then it is what it is, not my will, but yours be done. Three times I would have seen the disciples on watch fall asleep, and three times Jesus return to them and wake them up. I would have seen Jesus feel the pressing of a place like Gethsemane. So great was his stress and anguish that he sweat blood. I would have seen Jesus nearly collapse from all he was suffering. But I would have seen one of God's heavenly hosts come to revive him and counsel him. And I wonder if I would have seen that messenger of God reach up, pluck an olive from one of our branches, and squeeze the oil onto Jesus anointing Jesus and commissioning him. Go, therefore, and fulfill the law and the prophets. Be brave and upright. Endure these things for the sake of the world. I would have seen someone who fancied himself the high priest of God come out in force and leading a mob to arrest the Holy One himself. Among the rabble I would have seen a friend, one of the twelve disciples of Jesus. I would have seen him betray his Lord with a kiss. I would have seen them fall when Jesus said the name of God, I am. I would have seen Peter cut off the ear of Malchus, and Jesus order him to restrain himself. I would have seen Jesus willingly hand himself over to the posse, full well knowing that before another twenty-four hours will have passed, they will have charged him, the Son of God, with blasphemy made him stand like a criminal before the so-called religious leaders, before the so-called king of the Jews, 
before the Roman governor who, for all his Roman honor, would rather condemn an innocent man than stand up for him. Then, before the sun will have set, they will have beaten him, flogged him, whipped him down the street, stripped him naked, and nailed him to a cross to die. If I were an olive tree, I would have seen all of these things and more. And the next day, I would have seen, if I could look to the far side of the city, just beyond its walls, another rote execution of three condemned men, one of whom, only hours before, was here praying to God before being arrested. And in the days and years to come, I would have seen a small group of unlikely heroes preach that one of those condemned men, who had died on one of those crosses, had come back to life and, in doing so, proved that he had indeed saved the world, just as he said he would. I would have seen him address his disciples one last time on the Mount of Olives, very close to Gethsemane, and ascend into the clouds until he was blocked from view. I would have, in 70 AD, seen the Jewish temple Beit Hamikdash destroyed by the Romans, fulfilling a prophecy that Jesus had made. And over the centuries, I would have seen Jerusalem change hands from one empire to the next, enduring one siege after the next, making good use of its sturdy walls. I would have seen many pilgrims come and attempt to find the place where Jesus once knelt to ask God about a dreadful cup and an incontrovertible will. But only I and my companions, some of whom have died but whose seeds have burst forth into new life, new trees to carry on the memory, only we know the exact spot where Jesus knelt and Peter slept and Judas handed him over. I think, though, that more than anything, as the years turned to centuries and my trunk hollowed out, I would remember when, in the place of pressing, I saw the beginning of the fulfillment of the words of Isaiah that the Savior was crushed for our wrongdoings. He was punished so that we might find peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry today. My name is Ben Laboot, and I want to ask you to please share this podcast with the people in your life, and that is the best way to help Stories of Symmetry grow. Also, be sure to follow at Stories of Symmetry on Facebook and Instagram, and give a like or share when you see a post. Finally, don't forget that Practical Advice for a Better World is available now in hardcover, softcover, or ebook, and signed copies are also available. BenLaboot.com and at BenLaboot have more details. The next episode will be out in two weeks, and I hope you can join. Go with God, go in peace.